Just before Judy comes up and, uh, and shares with us, we'll have our reading. It is from Titus, the small epistle, the small letter to Titus from Paul. And it's just the, the first chapter. It's not too long. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to it or the words will come up on the screen. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. He has surely told the truth. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Judy, and uh, if I haven't met you, I'm part of the leadership here. It's great to be with you. Uh, I think Marcus should do audiobooks, don't you? I could listen to you just to read the Bible. Fantastic. Uh, it's great to be with you. We're starting a new series uh, on the body beautiful, looking at beauty lived out in the book of Titus. And uh, what does the beautiful life really look like uh, as a body, uh, looking at the body of Christ and how we stay beautiful? We're looking at this book that really is, uh, is written by Paul and his encouragement is to the church in Crete that actually they, they've started, if you like, they've found Jesus as Lord but they haven't really necessarily started living that out and it, it's an unfinished business 
And we know that's us. We know as church that we're unfinished, don't we? We know that we try to be holy, uh, but it's difficult. And this is a book about holiness. Uh, I read yesterday that uh, everyone loves to hear a talk on hope or happiness, but no one wants to hear one on holiness. And I thought, oh good, that's encouraging. Um, But actually it's tough. It's a tough passage because actually we can spiral down or we can say, no, actually the church is Christ's beauty lived out and his beauty is in us and be confident enough of his grace to live that out. And uh, what Paul does is he says to Titus before anything else, before Titus is to urge people to live a godly life, to love what is good, to detest what is not good, he actually sets all of this in the context of eternity, that actually the body will be made beautiful in time and that actually one day we will be eternally beautiful, eternal free of all our flaws, of all our frailties, of all our brokenness. And so this body beautiful... Um, I was uh, really excited this week that we had the Birmingham International Dance Festival. Saw Jason uh, Lowther there. He wasn't dancing, although I don't think this is you, Jason. I don't know. Um, But uh, what was so brilliant and what we all loved to see, it was a free thing that every night different people came, different companies from all over the world came to our city to dance. And they did that corporately. They did that together, one supporting another, throwing each other around, catching people, just phenomenal phenomenal cooperation and yes each dancer was beautiful in their movement but what was more beautiful was the ensemble of everyone coming together in trust in support in encouragement and actually you stood back and you thought how did they do that you know how did they do that not just in the flexibility but actually in the cooperation And I wonder in this letter, as Paul encourages Titus to to look at the church in Crete, which was corrupt, which wasn't living out what they'd signed up to, if you like. There was a gap. They knew it was unfinished, but they needed to be encouraged in the gift of godliness and holiness. And I wonder if there's something in that uh, for us today, that we would love this body of believers here at Riverside, across our services, across our sites. Wouldn't it be great if people stepped back and said, how did they do that? with God's help, with his spirit, as we've just prayed? How did we excel in loving people, even when it's tough? How did we preserve the unity of this body? I'm so jealous for the unity of this church, and and always have been, because I think it is one of the most beautiful things about us. Does that make sense? Uh, And I remember when I first came here, just thinking, these people speak well of each other. They love one another. What a privilege to be part of a leadership of a church like that. And I hope that that is still true today, but we know there are cracks. And this is a letter that urges us to stay united, to stay loving what is good, to stay encouraging one another. So this eternal context for the letter, uh, Paul says, don't think that it's a lie that there is a life beyond this one. If ever there was a man on earth who was qualified to say that, it was the Apostle Paul. Because he didn't believe it. He thought it was a total lie and then he met with the risen Jesus. 
on the road to on the road to Damascus. He had that Damascus experience that turned his whole life around, and he met with Jesus. He was one of 500 people who encountered the risen Jesus. So he says, please don't think that this stuff that I'm urging you, that he's writing to Titus to share with the church in Crete, please don't think that it's based on a lie. It's based on the truth. And I just really felt, as I was praying and thinking about this message, that that might be you today. You might be thinking, I hope we've got this right. I hope this faith is based on truth. And I just want to reiterate again that it's worth it. It's worth living the godly, beautiful life wherever we can, whenever we can. Because there is an eternal perspective to what we do here. And I can forget that. I'm a very in-the-moment person, if you know me. And sometimes it's hard for me, the discipline of thinking what I do now counts in eternity, resonates in eternity. Yes, it resonates in the beautiful, life here on earth but it actually has more resonance in, in heaven. And uh, just uh, recently, the, the PA to the leadership team, a lovely lady called Sharon, who some of you will met or emailed or, or, or encountered, uh, she's part of a church um, at a Baptist church on the Six Ways roundabout, um, not literally on the roundabout, but that's where it's located. And um, they've had a lot of deaths recently, a lot of grief, and uh, some of younger ones, some of older ones, and she just was grief-weary, and the pastor was grief-weary, and they were just thinking, oh my goodness. Um, and uh, then this elderly man died, or not that old, he was in his uh, 70s, I think, so not, not that old at all, really. Um, but he became a Christian just three years before he died. All his life he'd been an atheist. All his life he'd believed that his wife and family were basing things on a lie. And he had refused to go to church. His mum had been a Christian and prayed for him. And then suddenly one night he had a dream. And in the dream he met with his mother. He saw the face of his mother and heard the voice of his mother saying, you need to get sorted with God and go to church. And actually he saw a picture, not of the, the church that he thought he would attend, but actually of this church that Sharon goes to the Six Ways Church and it was so clearly that church that he'd passed on the roundabout that he thought gosh that's the church I've got to go to he went the pastor prayed with him and he gave his life to Jesus three years later he's on his deathbed dying he calls the pastor his own wife was there and another member of the church and they described him as one of the quietest men that they'd had in church a man who often smiled was very gentle but spoke so quietly that often that you couldn't actually hear uh, what he said and I'm just going to read her account of uh, his death really um, because it's so moving and so encouraging on the morning of that day when he peacefully slipped away in hospital having been visited by his wife his pastor and another member of his church all three were able to testify that this quiet and gentle man who they knew had been lying quietly in bed with his eyes open suddenly sat up very animatedly, urgently insisted that his slippers be put on his feet so that he could go. When they inquired where he wanted to go with the broadest of smiles and a loud, joyful voice, he then gave them a detailed account of how he'd been laying there when all of a sudden a man, Jesus, in a glowing white robe, had appeared to 
him and held out his hand. He knew it was Jesus. He followed him into the most beautiful garden where there was a river, trees, and angels everywhere praising God and singing and smiling at him. He just kept saying, it was so beautiful, so beautiful. I can't stay here anymore. I want to go. I have to go. And this is an old gentle guy uh, having a vision again, a fresh vision of the living hope that we have in Christ. And we need those reminders, I think, don't we? Do you know what happened at that service where that was shared in that funeral? Six young people gave their lives to Christ. The pastor thought, hang on a minute, we've had all these deaths, what's going on? No, hang on. And he spontaneously just said, by the way, you know, this guy's only been a Christian for three years and this is what happened. How about it? And, and six people gave their lives to the Lord. Out of great loss and trial for that church, something new, some new hope was reborn. Winston Churchill, uh, who, who had incredible resonance in his life and did some amazing things, said that he'd realised that he was a glowworm. Glowworms live but just for one day, but create light. And that's us, we're glowworms. We create light, but it's so temporary, it's so fleeting, and it feels like this day is everything, when actually eternity is everything, and our lives here are fleeting. At his funeral, Winston Churchill had a bugler, and uh, <laughs> my notes say a burglar, but that's something to do with the spell check. He may have had a burglar there, I don't know. But anyway, he definitely had a bugler. And um, the, the bugler was, was playing the, the last uh, tap, as it's called, the taps, which is, is really the goodbye. And it's, it's the, the falling asleep. And uh, he was playing that and then it went quiet. And everyone thought that the funeral ceremony had finished with that last note of the taps being played on that bugle. And then at the back of Westminster Abbey, they had a second bugler who started up what's called the reveille, which is the wake up. And the stanza of that is, he's awake, he's awake, wake up. And he designed, he wanted that for his funeral to show that actually he was passing, but actually he was moving into eternal life. So the context for this letter, the plea of this living beautifully, is it counts. And that's what Paul's saying to Titus. He's not just saying, give them all a good kick up the backside because they're not living right. He's saying this counts for eternity. The holy godly life is tough, but it counts. And uh, I read this uh, this week and I thought, how brilliant. The organic and unified growth of a church should be based on right teaching of God's truth and a living out of the life of that truth. That's the goal, isn't it? And we know we fail, we know we mess up, we know, as we've been reminded, that we have the Holy Spirit's power uh, and in Christ that we are made beautiful even when we don't feel it or or maybe uh, acknowledge it. Beautiful qualities that are in the passage, three that are highlighted. Firstly, integrity. Integrity. Something that perhaps isn't celebrated enough in our world, but biblically is always, always celebrated. That our words match our lives. That our life and our lips are the same. That we declare something that we are living. And we all know, if you like, if we're all overseers, this is written to leaders and elders, but we know that we are the overseers of the gospel and we are all called to have a life that matches what we testify. And actually, it's often our actions done with with great love that are the things that perhaps lead people to the reality of Christ. 
So he talks about loving what is good. He talks about beauty. Beauty attracts, evokes our wonder, our joy, arouses a flood of delight. We fall in love with beauty. We sing its praises and we want to stay in its presence. This is taken from a paper uh, called The Beauty of Christ written by Gerardo Collins. And he talks about the compulsion of beauty, the attraction of it, that when we're living lives that are surrendered to Christ's beauty, we live lives that are attractive to people looking in from the outside. The unity that we share is beautiful and the truth that we believe is beautiful. The claritas is the word, the truth. And he says to Titus, watch out because people are not believing what is true. The message has got corrupted somehow, it's got distorted. And so he's asked to warn the people that actually false teaching has got in. The people of Crete were going really off message and there's a danger for us. There are so many messages that will bombard us that can influence our thinking, but to stay true to the word, to stay rooted in scripture. Tomorrow night we're training up new life group leaders under Linda's leadership. And the reason for doing that is we want everyone here to stay invested in the truth of the gospel, not to wander off. Because as soon as we start to do that or add to it or make things up, then actually we lose this truth. If you think of the body beautiful and you think of our girl, going off and trying to find out what it looks like. We know that actually one of the messages of good fitness is that what we eat affects us, what we take in affects us. It comes out, if you like, in our beauty. We also know, if we've ever done a healthy regime, that the more we eat healthily, we start to crave different things. The things that you once craved, you don't crave as much. You start to maybe crave more fruit and vegetables than you first did because you're rewiring yourself. And it's the same if you like with the gospel the more we take in even if you just start with five minutes or so a day of reading his truth it starts to bring this claritas into our lives this beauty this godly living and we can grow in that it also starts us to be turned off by what we once thought was good And that's in a way what he's saying to Titus, remind them that actually there's a repulsion, that God hates what is corrupt. He hates what is contaminated and he wants it out of the body. He wants it out of this body, but he also wants it out of each of us. So I wonder what you love that is good. Just have a think about what you love in life that is good. I'm not asking you to share it with anyone, but what is good that you love? Because many times, it's not the physical, it's not the material things. It's actually being with friends, being with family, using our gifts, the things that we love, that edify us, that truly edify the spirit, are good and godly. This is what he lists really in uh, verses five to nine about what is good and godly that he can reward, that he can grow. Faithfulness, not a very attractive thing at the moment. I watched a television program the other day where people were applauding someone who just said, oh, I've just left him. You know, and then people just broke into spontaneous applause. And I thought, hang on a minute, why, what happened to applauding faithfulness? What happened to applauding people who stuck at it when it got tough? We live in a very fickle and very fragile world that actually doesn't always lord really faithful living as a beautiful thing, but it is. Uh, I was sharing the first service, and I, I think I told people this when I first came, but it bears repeating that the small group leaders I had when I was a fairly new Christian in Nottingham, we looked up to them, they were like the coolest couple 
people around. We wanted to be them. We learnt from them. We ate in their home. They taught us the Bible. And they were our kind of Christian heroes, if you like. Not that perhaps you were supposed to, but we really looked up to them. They were our leaders. And then one day we just heard when she was pregnant with her first child, he'd gone. That was it. Her mum was dying as well. So she had her mum dying and uh, she was pregnant. And we were all really, really raging towards this guy and angry and wanting to speak to him and give him our view or whatever. And she said, no. She said, as for this household where my daughter will grow up, I am praying that nobody speaks ill of him in this home. No one will speak ill of him. And she prayed that for years. She brought her daughter up with an absolute determination that that she would grow up loving her father, honouring, and that the home would be a place where he was spoken well of. Now, he didn't deserve that. No doubt in my mind about that. But that's what she set out to do. Now, a friend of ours who's quite mouthy and who was a friend of mine in Nottingham uh, went round to the house and she thought, well, you have to live by all that, but I don't because I'm not a believer, so I can say to him whatever I like. And she had it all planned out. She's a girl that's very good with words. And uh, I feared for him almost thinking if he does meet her, you know. And uh, she did see him just as he was uh, picking up their little one when when the the, the baby was born. And she said in the house, she went to give him what for. And she had rehearsed it. She knew what she would say. And as I said, she's got a, a bit of a mouth on her. And she couldn't speak. And that was so incredible for her. She just literally lost her voice. Her voice was fine. She went to say something, coughed, and just couldn't because she was silenced. Now, you could say that was a coincidence, you might, but I know how hard that woman had prayed that that home would have that as a miraculous thing. And what happened with the girl that was so mouthy just said, I cannot believe that, that's got to be something weird, was her words initially, but something other, something of God that had stopped her. Uh, And we we know in in scripture that God is able to silence, uh, and that's what he did there. So that's faithfulness to me lived out. And do you know what's interesting is I am sure that she thought when it all went wrong, what an example to this group that we lead, when actually the example of her living out her next few years has stayed with me till now. True beauty, real faithfulness, faithfulness lived out at cost. And I'm not going to say that we've all probably achieved what she achieved there, uh, nor necessarily would we. But that has stayed with me as something, somebody excelling in a beautiful life, in a faithful life. Being hospitable is another thing that is mentioned here. And actually, again, you might say, oh, well, that's something I'm really good at. You might say, well, I'm a good cook, or I really like that. Or you might say, actually, I don't find that easy. I'm a very private person. I'm not very outgoing, or I'm not a good cook. And uh, I uh, have a little example of this um, that uh, some of you will know I've recently joined the the Mosley Women's Book Club, and uh, or one of them, I'm not saying it's the only one, but one. And uh, they're all very lovely, lovely women um, with very big houses and very beautiful, very, very beautiful houses and houses. And uh, the idea of this book club, which I'm thoroughly enjoying, is that we choose the book, but if you choose the book, you host. So other people were choosing the book, and I was quite quiet on the choosing the book front, although I had some ideas. Not because of choosing the book, but because of my house, because I didn't want to have them to me. 
and I was quiet and they said, oh, what about you, Judy? What about you choosing the book? And I said, like, oh, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. And then I said, oh, well, I could, but maybe we won't do it at my house. We're going to do it at the Prince of Wales. And we were looking at how we could do that. And I was going, oh, yeah, no, we could do that. We could go to the Prince of Wales and I'll sort of host it, but we'll do it there. And then I just had this sort of word with myself. And I thought, this is the sin of pride lived out among these lovely women because it's me thinking because of my pride that my house isn't good enough. It's, it's really nice, by the way. I don't live in squalor. Um, <laughs> I'm very grateful for it, but it's not quite theirs. And so I really struggled to invite, but I did it. We had a lovely night. It was really, really brilliant. And it was, for me, something that I'd overcome. And, and hospitality can be taking someone for a drink. It can be having a coffee with someone. It doesn't have to be our homes. But actually, as we said at the beginning of this year, we are opening up our lives. That's what we're doing, that lovely verse in Zechariah about inviting our neighbour to come and sit under our vine and our fig tree. Having lives that actually are open to people in a city where there is so much loneliness and so much disengagement that we, the body beautiful, can bring people in and love them and be faithful, be kind, be holy and disciplined. And this business of holiness, there'll be a word, and we've said this before, when we hear the word holy, it's very easy to sort of spiral. <laughs> and just think, oh, I'm not very holy, or it feels like a tightrope that we just can't quite walk and we, we know we mess up. But holiness is every bit as much to do with the good that we do do as the things that we don't. We associate it with abstinence, and yet in this letter we see it's every bit as much about loving what is good. And as we pray for the Holy Spirit, as we receive communion, as we come together around his table, there is a sense that we know that not all of these will be right in us yet, that we are unfinished like the church in Crete, but actually that by his spirit, he is making us beautiful. He's transforming us. And as we hold firmly to the truth, and these verses that we're coming to now at the end are difficult verses because they're saying, cling to what is true in a world that is in really increasingly corrupt. Cling to what is the truth because there's an eternal perspective on what is true. Cling to the word as more and more people go off it and say, oh, well, they didn't mean that. Actually, to hold firm to what is true for the church is a really, really good challenge for us because it's not always a popularist thing. If we say this is what the Bible says, people can be offended by it. I, I think about Titus's strengths as a person and I think he must have been someone that Paul not only trusted with the the gospel but trusted that he was good at loving challenge because he, he gave him the letter of two Corinthians to deliver as well so he really trusted him that actually he was good at this business of loving challenge how good are we because the second part of this is really about how do we as the beautiful body of Christ rebuke or challenge how do we do it because I think there are two ways to do it I think there's a way to demolish someone that actually makes them think they'll never speak to us again. Um, or there's a way of opening up a conversation that actually says, oh, I hadn't thought of it like that, that actually edifies the person. 
And actually, more and more, and it'd be interesting to talk to some of our young people about this, but more and more, I believe, our young people are crying out for absolutes of truth. In a world that says, do a bit of this, bit of pick and mix, have a bit of this, throw in a bit of Buddha, throw in a bit of this. And actually, there's so many things that we can have in an eclectic mix. And I think there's a heart's cry for knowing that something is true and worth living and dying for. And here we have a faith that the, the, one of the founder apostles of it says, by the way, God didn't lie. This is truth. It's worth living your life for. It's worth it now and it's worth it eternally. I wonder what you think the myths are around Christianity that might mislead people, that we might want to challenge. Even this week, you might have somebody challenge you. I had a look at the top myths that are associated with Christianity um, uh, this weekend. The first is uh, that people say Christianity is intolerant and judgmental towards others. The truth is that Christianity teaches us to love our neighbour as ourself. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? To love our neighbour equal to ourself and to share the love of Christ with others where that's uh, appropriate to do and possible to do. The second myth about Christianity, people say Christianity cannot be true because of all the evil and suffering in our world. The truth is Christianity offers the best hope, grace and power to deal with suffering, knowing that its founder, Christ, has suffered in our place and actually shows through his death that suffering is at the heart of the gospel. The gospel wasn't meant for our comfort. It wasn't meant for our happiness. It was given us for our holiness and for our ultimate eternal freedom. But that can get distorted, can't it? I know it can in my head, that actually we think everything about God is that he's become this fairy godmother that we pray to and he brings it straight away, that we name it, claim it, tie a ribbon on it and receive it. That's not our experience, is it? As the body, that's not our experience. Or if you are, you're very blessed. <laughs> but hang on in there, because there's more ahead. You know, and I, I'm a very positive person, and I, when I first really found faith, I thought that was it. I thought we just prayed for people and that, that they were healed. Now, we've heard an amazing testimony of that today. But there will also be stories here of people who are still waiting to see that, and who actually, possibly, this side of heaven won't see that. There's mystery. And I applaud Sally for coming forward, because we need those stories that build faith in us to pray. But but we also need to praise God in the mystery of what seems yet not to have happened for us. And actually that is faithfulness. That is the beauty of faithfulness that is in this passage. So as we come to communion then, as we come to looking at our body beautiful, which is us here and uh, the assembly over at Bourneville as well, what is it that we perhaps will take from this message? We're going to be spending the next uh, three weeks in the book of Titus um, and looking at the beautiful life. And I believe that this is timely for us as a church, that he wants us to excel in the beauty of hospitality, a time where we're wanting more people to join us, that we excel in the welcome of one another, that we excel in the welcome of people coming to meet us, that we excel in our, in our giving, that we excel in our monetary giving, in our giving to food bank, whatever that is, 
there is something beautiful about it. I arrived at church today to find that the system that we thought was, was new and brilliant was totally broken. And uh, all of our techie teams and all of our lovely band were just so serenely just getting on with cabling things, resorting it. There was no big stress party going on. Everybody was just doing their bit to put it right. And at about, I don't know what time it was, but quite close to the wire, everything was then put right. And I thought, that's the body beautiful. That's the, the beauty of, of this body, living out servanthood, hospitality, kindness, generosity of heart. And he would love by his spirit, this is a fruit of his spirit, the fruit of self-control. I am not a disciplined person in my natural personality and one of my great prayers in life is for the gift of self-control, that he will change and shape me. The things that we know we lack in the natural, we can pray for in the spiritual to complement us where we're finding it tough. And there will be things on that list that all of us find tough. But in Christ, he has that the wherewithal, the beauty of his body lived out, broken for us. And there is beauty in brokenness. There is real beauty in brokenness. That's where the body of Christ is so different from any other leader because the whole gospel is built around brokenness. So we know that we're a broken body today, that we're a beautiful body, uh, but help us to be a faithful body that excels and loves doing what is good. Maybe at the start of the week, maybe tomorrow if you're walking to work or you're driving, whatever, to just pray again that you would love what is good. Let's stand together if we're able to as we approach communion. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was asked this week uh, in, the, in the prayer week that they're having, praying thy kingdom come, he was asked what would he have people pray for him? And he said, I would love to be prayed for that I have the wisdom to know to, what to do that is right. The wisdom to know how to do what is right. And he seems to be doing pretty well in my eyes. <laughs> um, but that was his prayer, that he would have the wisdom from Christ to know what to do and to do what is right. He also wanted the courage to do it, knowing that that comes from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the patience to know when and the timing of God's plan. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we begin this series on living out your beauty. We are aware of our flaws. We are aware of those things that we've let contaminate the body, those things that have crept into this body that are not of you, those things that we've let into our lives that are not pleasing, we read in this passage, detestable to you. We, Lord, we, we long to be people who live lives that are beautiful. And we surrender again every area of our lives that we know is not beautiful to you. And Lord, in place, as we take communion, as we take the bread to remember your body broken, we pray that we would know that we are part of the beautiful brokenness of your body that we don't have to have it all sus, that we are reliant on your grace, on your gentle transformation by your spirit, and that we are a body here that is becoming more and more beautiful as we stay true to your message and true to your word. 
Forgive us, we pray, and help us change. For we ask it in your precious name, in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.